let me ask you this question. If you could witness anything from the life of Jesus, what would it be? I think about this. There's some amazing things that we've learned about through this journey, through the Gospel of Luke. Would you want to be there at the birth of Jesus? That would have been really neat to see. Or how about when he was 12 years old and was found in the temple, astounding the religious leaders with his insight into the scriptures? I would pay money to see that. Or maybe you would love to be among the crowds who are just listening to Jesus I say things absolutely incredible, loving your enemies, about what God has done and is doing in and through his ministry. Maybe you want to hear live Jesus talk about the prodigal son. Or maybe the story of the, the Good Samaritan. Or maybe you want to see some of the things that Jesus did, how he healed a person covered in leprosy, how he healed a paralytic, how he brought back from the dead even Lazarus, his friend. That would have been amazing to see. Or maybe you'd want to be there at the crucifixion of Jesus just to to witness firsthand what they did to such a a beautiful person. Or maybe you'd want to be there that Sunday morning when the ladies walked to the tomb and found it empty. What would you want to see? Philip Ryken, who is the president of Wheaton College, answered that question this way. He said, I would choose to travel the gospel road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, walking with the two disciples on an Easter afternoon and listening to Jesus explain how everything in the whole Bible is about him. That actually would be really, really cool to see and to experience. And so what I want us to do today is to join those disciples on that Easter afternoon and their confusion and they're trying to make sense of everything that has just happened and to see Jesus come alongside them and engage them in conversation and how he went to their house with them and was known to them in the breaking of the bread and how they went back to Jerusalem and told the disciples what they had experienced. So we're going to call our study today The Key to Unlocking Everything. We're going to be in this passage that was just read to us. So as we get ready to look at it in depth, let's pause and ask the Lord to be the one who teaches us this day. Lord, we thank you for this copy of the, the Gospel according to Luke this good news about Jesus and how he wants us to know with certainty the things that took place. And so as we look at this passage now, these disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, confused and and not sure what to to make of everything that has happened over that that weekend some 2,000 years ago, would you help us to understand this passage? Did you give us insight? Did you help us to understand Jesus as the key to everything? and change our lives with it, we pray in his name. Amen. So the context, remember, of where we are in this gospel are the ladies who went to the tomb on that Sunday morning to to prepare Jesus' death with spices, his body with spices, to help preserve it, because remember they used these tombs to bury multiple people in. And they went there and they found the tomb empty. And they went inside to see what was going on, and the body of Jesus was not there. And remember how this must have been very confusing for them. It might seem even like a cruel joke that someone had stolen the body of Jesus and and adding sorrow to sorrow until an angel appeared to them and asked them this penetrating question, why do you seek the living among the dead? They said that he is not here. He has risen. And so the women hurried back to the disciples. And we're told by Luke The women told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
I mean, after all, they believe what you believe, that people who die stay dead. That's what happens. Even though they believe in a future resurrection at the end of time, what's this resurrection in the middle of time? It doesn't make sense. We, we witness the crucifixion of Jesus. There's no way that these things can be true. So that's where we come when we hit verse 13. And Luke picks up the story and tells us that that very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Here are two disciples who had witnessed these women coming back, who didn't believe what these women had said, and we're not sure why they're going to Emmaus, but maybe they just need to get out of Jerusalem and try to put their heads together. And so they're walking along, talking about everything that they had seen and witnessed that weekend. And we're told in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing these things together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Here Jesus catches up to these two disciples and he's walking alongside them, and we're told that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. How's, how's that possible? How's that the case? So you read different commentators, they, some suggest that supernaturally, God has prevented them from recognizing Jesus in this moment. I mean, that might be the case. We're not told. I think it has to do with their, their slowness and just being wrecked by everything that's happened. They just don't recognize the person who's pulled up to them. Jesus may have had his hood pulled over. I'm not sure. I don't want to read too much into it, but Jesus catches up to them but they're not recognizing him. In verse 17, it says, He said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Jesus wants to know what they're talking about. I think he knows what they're talking about. But he's asking them, What are you guys talking about? And that very question arrests them. They just stop. They're looking sad. Maybe they're struggling to, to recount the brutal torture and crucifixion of Jesus. Then one of them, we're told, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened here or there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Here's a disciple named Cleopas, and if you're a student of the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus, you're thinking to yourself, I don't remember that being one of the disciples. I remember James and John and Andrew, Peter, but I don't remember anyone named Cleopas. I remember there was an inner circle of disciples, the twelve, and there were other disciples that were following along with Jesus. In fact, there was that one time when he sent out 70 disciples to go proclaiming the gospel in the towns ahead of him. So there was a group of disciples, and one of the lesser named ones um, was Cleopas. And so he asked him this this really, it's almost kind of a humorous question. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, everyone knows what has happened. I mean, this is what everyone is talking about. How is it that you're the only one who doesn't know what has happened? And Jesus said to them, what things? I wonder if he had to suppress a a wry smile on the corner of his mouth. Jesus, in a sense, just kind of playing dumb here. What, what things are you talking about? What happened in Jerusalem? Tell me. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. 
And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Here they recognized that Jesus was a prophet, that he was mighty in word and deed. He was a powerful preacher, and he was a powerful miracle worker, and he is mighty in these things. But they also told him about how the chief priests, their own religious leaders, sold Jesus up the creek. They delivered him over to be condemned to death, and he was crucified. And then they say this. Listen to the the note of disappointment in their voice. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the promised one. We had hoped that he was the one that would come and deliver us from slavery to Rome. We had so many hopes set on him, and now they're dashed. Besides, it's been now three days since this has happened. Now, you and I hear that phrase, the third day, and there's a bell going off. Ding, 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 ding. That's because we know the rest of the story. For them, the third day simply meant Jesus has been in the tomb a while now, and all hope is lost. But when that phrase, the third day, spilled out of their mouth, it should have caught them. It should have arrested them. I mean, already through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has talked about the third day. Back in chapter 9, when he was setting his face like, like flint to go to Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or how about chapter 18, when his disciples are drawing near to Jerusalem with him? He said, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Or that phrase echoed in the voice of the angel to the the, the ladies who appeared. Why do you... Look for the living among the dead. He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They should have been dialed in to what would happen on the third day. Jesus has been telling them all along, but they weren't. They say in verse 22, moreover, some women of our company, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. These are some of the the female disciples of Jesus, part of the company of the disciples that went with Jesus wherever he went. And he says, look, some of these women even told us the tomb was empty, and an angel appeared to them and said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, that is Jesus, they did not see. I want you to notice the essential elements of what we might call the gospel according to Cleopas. He admits that there was an execution 
that there was an empty tomb, and there were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. He knew some of the essential facts, but still, in all of this, it didn't add up to any notion of of what could be called a gospel in reality. I love what Philip Ryken said in his commentary. Listen, this is very helpful. They had basically all the facts they needed about the cross and the empty tomb, including the witness of the apostles. But in their confusion, it did not add, I'm sorry, it did not yet add up to a gospel. It was like hearing the punchline without getting the joke. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) You ever been in a group of friends and someone tells a joke and everyone busts out laughing and you're like, didn't really get that. They had all the essential elements they needed for this thing to be good news, but it wasn't adding up to good news. It was like hearing the punchline without getting the joke. So the gospel, writes Philip Ryken, according to Cleopas, was not really a gospel after all. The word gospel means good news, but there is no good news unless Jesus has risen from the dead. So Jesus now speaks, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. I don't know how you read that or how it sets. Imagine what some people, they would read that and hear Jesus basically saying, you idiots. (laughs) How do you not get this? Maybe that's the tone. I I tend to think that Jesus is a little bit more um, probably playful in this. One commentator suggests, he's saying, you guys are clueless. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is why I think when they didn't recognize Jesus, they were, they were so clouded in their thinking and, and their grief and, and trying to put the facts of this weekend together. They were just overwhelmed as they walked with Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Then he asked them this question, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? and enter into his glory? In other words, this is what the prophets have been telling you guys. This is what I've been teaching you. Was it not necessary? Didn't it have to be this way, that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? That one that you had hoped upon? The one who would be the suffering servant? Was it not necessary that he suffer and then enter into his glory? And then get this. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine what that must have been like? For Jesus to take the scriptures, and he didn't have a scroll with him, he, he was a master of the scriptures, but he began with Moses, that is with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible and walk them through the story of their people, showing them how everything pointed to him. When I went to seminary, there were a couple of professors, one by the name of Knox Chamlin, the other by the name of Ralph Davis. I just ate up everything that they said. There, were, there, were, there was a sense in which I couldn't get enough of them. In fact, one of them, Knox Chamlin, taught a Greek class on the gospel, I'm sorry, the parables in the gospel of Luke. 
And I took it, not because I wanted to study more Greek, but because I wanted to be around this man. I wanted to hear everything he had to say about Jesus. And Ralph Davis made the Old Testament come to me, uh, alive to me in ways that I've never experienced before. I would love to just sit at their feet and, and learn every verse of the Bible with these guys. And that would be amazing. But here's something 10,000 times better than that. Jesus is, is explaining to these men how everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is all about him. Wouldn't that be amazing to see? I admit to you, I, I, there, there are places in the Old Testament that, that I'm kind of stumped at, that, that are really difficult reading. We're reading about a culture that lived thousands of years ago and trying to step into that culture and understand everything. But these guys, can you imagine just being able to ask Jesus, what does this verse mean? Luke continues. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he, that is Jesus, acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. They, they urge Jesus to come to their place, and as they're eating dinner together, Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Now, someone is saying, wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot like communion. Is that what Luke wants us to see? I want to submit to you that's exactly what Luke wants us to see. The last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, Luke tells us that he was at table with them, that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And now this first supper with these two disciples, Jesus is at table with them once again. He takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And we're told in verse 31, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Isn't this strange? Jesus has been walking with them. He's been, he's been showing them how the scriptures point to the Messiah that he claims to be. And it wasn't until they sat down and had a meal with Jesus, and he walked through the very liturgy that he had, sent, he had, had with them just a few days before, and all of a sudden, the light bulbs went on, and they recognized Jesus. What happened here? It says their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. I mean, their eyes were open, weren't they? I mean, they're sitting there eating dinner with him. I think it's not simply the eyes in their head that is being referred to here. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says this. He gives thanks to the followers of Jesus in that city. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What a beautiful phrase. Paul is praying that their eyes, not their physical eyes, the eyes of their heart, that is something miraculous at the core of their being, that it would be enlightened, the darkness would lift, and they would be able to see and to savor Jesus. I think that's exactly what's going on here. The eyes of their hearts were open. They recognized him. And then we're told he vanished from their sight. Again, it's a little strange phrase here. I don't 
don't know what quite to make of this. I mean, the word can simply mean that he, he, he was no longer appearing before them. Maybe like he got up and left. Or maybe in his glorified body, I mean, he could walk you know, through doors that were closed and appear in those rooms, so there's something different about his glorified body. I don't want to read too much into this. <laughs> I just know that Jesus was with them, and then their eyes were opened, and then he's no longer with them. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Oh, to hear Jesus teach the scriptures in such a way that our hearts would burn within us. Oh, to be able to soak in the scriptures, to see and to savor Jesus so that our hearts are burning within us. We're not talking about a, a dry reading of scripture or listening to a dry sermon. Something incredible is going on with them that can only be described as like a fire within them. As I was thinking on this, I, I thought about that quote by Martin Luther who said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It's talking about a living encounter with the Word of God. And that's what these men on the road to Emmaus had when Jesus opened these scriptures to them. As they were beginning to put the pieces together, as Jesus was reinterpreting the new reality of his resurrection for them. We're told next by Luke that they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. <laughs> now remember, they had left Jerusalem Sunday morning to go on that seven-mile journey to Emmaus. They've been hanging out with Jesus. It's now into the night. Jesus leaves, and so they say to themselves, we've got to go back to Jerusalem. So they leave in the middle of the night, which is the most dangerous time to travel in the world at that time, but they had to get back to Jerusalem. And so we're told they found the 11, that is the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, and those who were with them together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Maybe Jesus had told them he had already appeared to Simon somewhere in their conversation. And, and now they hurry back and say, it is true. Remember, we didn't believe the women. We weren't sure what to make of, of what the apostle Peter said. But, but now it's true. He has appeared to Simon Peter, and, and we have seen him as well. What must that conversation have been like? Our light bulbs going off. They saying to themselves, this is too good to be true. This doesn't make sense. We want it to be true, but is it? And they were told, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So my friends, why does Luke want us to know about this? The other gospel writers don't include this in their telling of Jesus, but, but Luke does. Remember, Luke has carefully investigated the life of Christ. He sets out to, to write a historical biography, a biography of Jesus. He interviews those who are closest to him and compiles this for someone named Theophilus, which we think was a Roman ruler. And he writes to him so that he would know with certainty the things that he had heard about Jesus. And so I think what Luke is driving at, especially in this place right here, is that the gospel is the good news about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ the King. We saw that much the last time we were in the book of Luke. But to add to that, the eyes of our hearts must be enlightened to not only see him, but to embrace him as our crucified and risen King. Have you come to a place in your life, my friends, where the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened to see and to savor Jesus, to embrace him as your crucified and risen king. This is where Luke is taking us by the hand. This is what he wants us to see. 
I love what C.S. Lewis once said. <laughs> he says, you're no longer faced with an argument which demands your assent, but with a person who demands your confidence. That's exactly what Luke wants to show you, that Jesus is worthy of all your trust. He is the crucified and risen king, and he calls people like you and me to trust in him for eternal life. So here's a couple points of application, my friends, as we get going. As we get going on application, I should say. <laughs> We're winding down the sermon here. I don't want to freak anybody out. First of all, let's look to see Jesus in the gospel. Remember, the gospel is good news. The gospel is not our testimony. It's not our thoughts and feelings about Jesus. The word gospel means a proclamation of good news. And specifically in the context of Jesus, it's breaking news about the person of Jesus, his crucifixion and resurrection. And that news calls for a response by everyone who hears it. We're not just simply meant to look at this and go, well, isn't that interesting? That's a historical curiosity. I don't know what to make about that. Uh, this news is meant to, to collide with our lives, to grab hold of us, so that we would respond in trust. This is exactly what you see the early followers of Jesus doing. You remember the Apostle Paul. He was one of the Pharisees who had conspired with the other religious leaders to put Jesus to death. And he later became convinced of the truthfulness of Jesus when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he would later appear before kings and chains before kings. And you can read this in volume two of Luke's work. You have the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And in chapter 26, he tells us about how Paul appeared before King Agrippa. And he says to him, listen, listen to what he says, and note kind of how this ties back in with what Jesus was saying to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says to King Agrippa, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. I stand here today testifying to both small and great, saying that nothing but what Moses said would come to pass. Remember how Jesus began with his disciples and with Moses and the prophets and explained to them how Christ must suffer and enter his glory. Paul's rehearsing that same story. I'm saying nothing to you except what Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the nations. I am not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. In other words, he's saying to Agrippa, Agrippa, you know the story and how everyone is going around saying Jesus has come back from the dead. You know these things. He says, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. But this has not been done in a quarter in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe him. And Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but to all who hear, hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. He says, King, I want you to become a Christian. I want everyone who hears me to become a Christian because Christ is risen from the dead. I want you to become just like I am, a follower of Jesus, except I don't want you to be in chains. 
My friends, we're kind of living through a moment in our culture where a lot of people, especially those who've been raised in Christian environments, are kind of deconstructing their faith. Maybe you've heard about this. It's a term borrowed from philosophy, which simply means the, the process of reevaluating and even challenging your worldview and beliefs. And I know over the last couple of years, in light of a lot of the scandals of church leaders and cover-ups by churches, a lot of people are just kind of shocked that people who've, who've taught them about Jesus would do things like this. And a lot of people are like, well, what's really true? Start deconstructing and, and kind of tearing down. What do I know to be true? My friends, if, if you're there, if you're kind of struggling with that, let me say, I've, I've kind of had to walk through that again myself over the last couple of years. What is ground zero? What is the epicenter of the Christian faith? I'm not asked to put my faith in a church. I'm not asked to follow certain religious leaders. What is the epicenter? I love this. This is one of those defining quotes that has guided me and anchored me in my life by the Yale professor, Yaroslav Pelikan. He said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. In other words, if Jesus is risen from the dead, that is ground zero. That is the foundation upon which you build your life. But if he's not been risen from the dead, it doesn't really matter what you do. Eat, drink, and be merry. One day you will pass from this world. The universe will die of heat exhaustion and no one will remember anything about you. However, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. That's the most important. So that was the first point. Let's look to see Jesus in the gospel, but let's also look to see Jesus in all of the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon was this um, Baptist minister in London, Victorian England, and uh, he said this one time. He said, from every town, village, and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. So just like in London, all over England, there, there are roads that lead to the center, the great metropolis of London. So in the Scriptures, wherever you might find yourself, there are roads that lead to the great metropolis of Scripture. <laughs> The high point of scripture, Jesus himself. Your business, he says, is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? Run along the road towards the great metropolis of Christ. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, this is what we should seek through the whole of scripture, to know Jesus Christ truly and the infinite riches which are included in him and offered to us by God the Father. The scriptures are a rich, long story that lead us, leads us to Jesus. And it gives us wisdom to, to live in light of who Jesus is. And so I'm going to ask you just this question on the side. How is your appetite for the scriptures? If you were to look back over this last week or last month or this last year, how is your appetite for the scriptures, which speak about the most amazing person who has ever lived, the one who was crucified and has come back from the dead? It's all about Christ. How is your appetite for the scriptures. Let's learn to see Jesus in the gospel. Let's learn to see Jesus together in the scriptures. And here's the last point. Let's look to see Jesus in the sacraments of the Lord's table. Remember what Luke told us. How Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
Every week here at Mercy Hill Church, we have what's called communion, the Lord's table. It's a reenactment, if you will, of that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Why do we do that? Because it's a way for us to not only remember what Jesus has done for us, but for us as a community to embody and to live out the gospel together. And so communion is nothing magical. We get the same grace at communion that we get in the preaching of the word, but we get it in a slightly different way. Listen to what Riken says in his commentary. He says, The sacrament does not offer us a grace that is any different from the grace we receive by believing what the Bible says about the death and resurrection of Jesus. What the sacrament does is give us the same grace in a different way, a way that helps us to see Jesus. So every week when we come together, my friends, this meal roots us in the past, present, and future. It roots us in the story of Jesus, what he has done for people like you and me in the past, how he lived for us, how he died for us, and how he rose again for us, and now lives to intercede for us. It helps root us in the past, but it also roots us in the present that yet again, this Sunday, the Lord Jesus invites us to come to this table, to take the bread, to take the wine, and to feast on him. Not that these elements become the body of Jesus, but they help us to understand that Jesus must nourish us at the core of our being. And so we get to commune with him today and with one another. And it also points to the future. Remember how we began the service today? That reading of the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The scriptures portray the kingdom as an eternal feast, an eternal celebration. And Jesus, when we arrive, and he sets all things to right, will welcome us into that eternal feast. And so it roots us, past, present, and future. So my friends, let's look to see Jesus in the sacrament of the Lord's table as well. So Mercy Hill Church. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened to see Jesus, the crucified and resurrected King, in the gospel, in the scriptures, and in the sacrament. He is the key to everything.